0: Hi, this is Ben Lola, back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue our series, The Power of the Gospel with Dr. John Newfeld. Here he'll help us understand a passage from Romans 7 that speaks about what role sin continues to play in the Christian's life. So let's begin as we look at Romans chapter 7, verse 14, with a message called Old and New.
1: When you hear Christians talk about their inner life, what it means to be in Christ and grow in holiness, if you listen closely, you sometimes hear different believers defining their inner life very differently. Some seem to talk as if the great struggles of their sinful inclinations are a matter of the past. Once they were in sin, but now they are in Christ, they have done away with sin. They love verses like 2 Corinthians five seventeen, which says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Or First John 3, 9, which says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. You know, these are precious verses. Indeed, they give every believer reason for confidence that we will win the war over sin and grow into holiness. But do these verses actually mean that sin is once for all done away with in the spiritual life of the believer? Can that be the case? Well, some respond with a definite yes. I heard one teacher who conducted seminars on sexual purity say that the only way a Christian can be tempted is when the devil puts temptations into your mind. They don't arise out of yourself, he said, for you have received a new nature. So for him, the new nature is an inner nature that no longer lusts, but must be incited from without. If the devil were gone from us tomorrow, the Christian would no longer lust. At least that's the way he thought. I know of some who hold a doctrine called the doctrine of entire sanctification, believing that it is possible to reach the place in one's spiritual growth where not only is all desire for sin abandoned, but we actually reach a place in this life where we no longer sin. I once knew a Bible teacher who, although he denied the possibility of entire sanctification, said that in his own experience, he found himself going for weeks without committing a single sin. Sin, in his view, had been driven to become ineffective and a tired and defeated foe. Well, along this line of thinking are those who argue that it is possible to have an experience with the Holy Spirit, a dramatic moment in which sin is defeated in one stroke. And by the way, I reject this perspective, but I know of one televangelist who held this and was found to be seeing a prostitute. See, what interests me is not the sin of hypocrisy. I, for my part, don't want to join in the chorus of condemning this man for his obvious sin. That's far too easy. But for my part, I wondered about his inner life. Is it possible that his theology told him one thing and his inner experience was shouting something very different? See, I could only imagine the life of denial that was going on inside of him. But that's an extreme case. I only use that as an example to try to help us to see that on the one side of the equation are those who are convinced that sin can be beaten to a large degree in this life, that we reach a point where sin is actually rare and an exception in the life of the believer. On the other side are those who strongly disagree. You know, one of the most godly pastors I know told me that he doubts he ever goes 10 minutes without sinning. He said, the closer I grow to Christ, the more I'm aware of my sin moment by moment. He told me that since the Bible commands us to do all things to the glory of God, that he finds this insidious nature of pride and self-seeking finding its way, well, into his prayers, into his sermons, and into the holiest moments of his life. As the Spirit opens his eyes, he finds that he often acts contrary to the pure desire to glorify God. And he said, whenever we act not out of pure desire for God's glory, we sin. You know, once we believe, he said, we're like Isaiah in the temple. We say, woe is me, for I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Indeed, there are some people who believe that the closer you walk with God, the more aware you become of your sin. And you realize it was a greater problem than you had ever imagined. They point out that Romans 6.12 warns us not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies, and this must mean that it's a constant fight. James 3.2 says that we make many mistakes. 1 John 1.8 tells Christians that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, it has struck me that the two views have a very different understanding of what they mean when they talk about sin. One group seems to focus on the outward actions of sinning or the grosser aspects of sin. They speak of the sexual sins and the sins of theft and even taking the the name of the Lord in vain, and on the other side are those who focus on the hard attitude before God and seem to stress that the greatest sins are not adultery and lying, but the greatest sins are like that of the Pharisee mentioned in Luke 18 verse 11, who thanked God that he was not like other men, when in fact he was blind to his own pride. It was John Murray who said, Indeed, the more sanctified the person is, the more conformed he is to the image of his Savior, the more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. The deeper his apprehension of the majesty of God, the more conscious he will be of the gravity of the sin that remains, and the more poignant will be his detestation of it. Well, all of that's an introduction to a very difficult passage in Scripture, a passage in which very many good and honest Bible teachers have, in fact, disagreed. You see, Romans 7:14 to 25 has, throughout the history of the church, been a passage which many people have understood differently. So before we go further, let's read the entire passage. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Now, where do we begin? I hope you notice the most obvious of all questions. Who is Paul talking about? If he's talking about himself, is this his current experience as he writes this book? And if it is, what was going on in his life to make him speak this way? Is there some horrible sin that he's hiding, that if it were discovered would disqualify him for the ministry and even cast doubt on the authenticity of his salvation? But others have argued that Paul is describing his spiritual condition prior to his salvation. After all, what Christian could say what Paul says in verse 14, I am sold under sin. Furthermore, so it is argued that Romans 8 sounds so different, and for that matter, so does Romans 6.18. I mean, the passage says, having been set free from sin, we have become slaves of righteousness. You remember we said that conversion is a change of slave owners. And so there are those that argue that this passage must refer to Paul's experience before he was a believer. You see, freedom from sin is the power of the gospel. Besides, Romans 7 must be pre-conversion, for how could the converted Paul say as he does in verse 24, O wretched man that I am? Do Christians talk that way? And if they do, does that mean that the holy life or the life that Christ wants is not available? So you see, there are good reasons for believing this is Paul before conversion. See, while I understand the strength of these arguments, I still say that this passage is a description of Paul's life as a believer who is growing in holiness. As shocking as that may sound to many of my hearers, let me stress at the outset that Paul is not hiding an enormous inner sin like a secret sexual sinner or that he's a serial killer or that he's a habitual liar and a deceiver. See, if you were near Paul, You would find him disciplining his body and his thought life. You would find a man of prayer and a man of holiness. You would find a consistent inner and outer life in which he portrays himself to be who he actually is. You would find a man willing to sacrifice himself for the cause of Christ. A man of deep abiding love for both his people and his Lord and Savior. So much so that he would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And yet, you would also hear Paul saying, as he does in 1 Timothy 1, verse 16, that he believes himself to be, and there he speaks in the present tense, the foremost of sinners. Now, how can both of those be true? And when we come back, I'm going to try to explain why I believe that Romans 7, 14-25 is a description of every single believer's life and yet we're victorious.
0: If we've been set free from the power of sin, then what does this mean for the process of sanctification? Does living victoriously through Christ actually mean that we no longer struggle or deal with sin? Well, in this introduction, Dr. Newfeld helps us to see the different and conflicting opinions amongst believers. But as we go back to the Bible, we'll see how Paul's continuous acknowledgement and battle with his sin reveal the truth we must know on this issue. More when we come back. Thanks so much for listening today. Now, have you ordered your copy of The Power of the Gospel on CD yet? While well, we're offering this five-week series on Romans 5-8 to for just $35, and that includes shipping and handling, Dr. John Newfeld has been teaching us the rich theological truths as laid out by the Apostle Paul about how the gospel empowers us for godly living. There is indeed so much depth and practical application here for every believer in their journey of faith get these 25 messages on cd for yourself or perhaps to share with friends and family just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca now let's go back to the bible with dr john Newfeld.
1: when we left off i told you that i believe that romans 7 14 to 25 is a description of Paul's life as a believer who is growing in grace and holiness. But how can I hold this to be the case? Well, first, I notice that Paul consistently speaks of himself using the first-person pronoun in the present tense. About 40 times he says, I, or me, or my. I do not do, he says. I see in my members, he says. Even though one might argue that Paul can speak this way about a past experience, the actual grammar is in the present. And that certainly adds weight to the idea that this is his current experience. Second, please notice that there are certain features in this passage which, in my view, could not speak about Paul's pre-conversion experience. What do I mean? Well, first of all, notice verse 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then later, I have the desire to do what is right. Or look at verse 22. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Is it really possible for a non-Christian to talk that way? As to whether a non-Christian is so aware of his or her own sinfulness, let me suggest to you that before he came to Christ, Paul was not that. Listen to his own description of himself, which he describes in some detail in Galatians one13 14. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Now from that description of things, we don't see an uncertain man crying out, who will deliver me from this body of death, but rather a confident man assured that he was doing God's will. And if you add to that another example Paul gives of his pre-conversion life, that of Philippians 3, he describes his internal thought life at that point in time. In verse 4, he said that he had reasons for confidence in the flesh. And of course, in Romans 7, he says he's alarmed by his flesh. And in Philippians 3, verse 6, please notice the words, "...as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless." So in his pre-conversion life, Paul thought of himself as perfectly having fulfilled the law. He displays no inner torment, no inner conflict, rather a proud confidence that God was pleased with him, that as he dragged believers off into prison, the smile of God was on him. Paul actually believed something in his pre-conversion life that he adamantly denied after he became a follower of Christ. Before Jesus, he believed that he had kept the whole law, and in one sense, I guess he did. He really was blameless, for the righteousness he pursued was only an external righteousness. And by the way, it takes a believer, one who has been given an awareness by the Holy Spirit, to say what Paul does, for instance, in Ephesians 2, 1-5. There he describes the life before conversion as being dead in our trespasses, by nature a child of wrath. As far as I see it, the majority of non-Christians do not describe themselves as sinners. They describe others as sinners, to be sure, but even though they feel their conscience pricking them for their errors, they often excuse themselves. There are mitigating circumstances, they say. My case is special. If it hadn't been for, and then, I mean, you fill in the blank. But for Paul, his thoughts didn't even go there. He was, by his own testimony, a man who thought of himself as blameless. Now, I know that some, because of this, have argued that Romans 7 deals with Paul in the throes of conviction, just before his conversion, when he would have had a heightened sense of his sin brought on by the Holy Spirit. But this, too, is contradicted by the actual facts of Paul's life. From every description he gives of his conversion, Christ encountered him in a time when his zeal for Judaism was at its peak. See, it's for this reason that I must conclude that nothing in the description of Romans 7 sounds even remotely like Saul of Tarsus before he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Indeed, in Acts 8 verse 1, it reminds us that after Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was stoned to death, Saul approved of his execution. He felt no remorse, no guilt, only zeal. What then do we make of Romans 7 14? For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Can a Christian talk that way? And that's a very important question. Or can a Christian express the kind of despair that Paul expresses in verse 24, where he says, O oh, wretched man that I am? That's not just an intellectual question. That question is intensely personal. Consider the following conversation that I personally had with a young woman. She told me she was seeking another church because she was tired of all this sin talk. She said, I was a sinner, but now I'm a saint. She told me this truth has profoundly freed her, that this constant awareness of sin did not jive with her experience. She said she had been set free from sin, and whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Now, before I answer the question of freedom in Christ, which is truly the embrace of all believers. Let me suggest a couple of New Testament examples. For instance, a quick study of the seven churches of Revelation finds that five of them were severely warned by Christ of subtle sins that they must repent of. The church of Ephesus had lost her first love, the church of Thyatira tolerated immorality without disciplining it, and so forth. Or consider the Apostle Peter as Paul describes him in Galatians 2, verse 11. Paul says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now that word condemned is a harsh word. And yes, this is after Peter's conversion and his infilling with the Holy Spirit. This is Peter the apostle who stood condemned. You know, later in verse 12, Paul also implicates Barnabas, of whom he said was led astray by the hypocrisy of Peter and others. And then in verse 14, he goes so far as to say, I saw that their conduct was not in step with the gospel. What was the problem? Peter knew that the gospel was a gospel that included both Jews and Gentiles, and so when he was ministering in the church in Antioch, which was a Gentile church, he would eat with the Gentile church. That seems a very small matter to us, but to the Jews in his day, eating with Gentiles was strictly condemned. But Peter did it because God had shown him earlier through a vision that God had accepted Gentiles. But then certain Judaizers showed up from Antioch, and Peter, rather than standing for the truth of the gospel, buckled because he was intimidated by these men. He undoubtedly considered their opinions of him to be of greater concern than the gospel. And what is that? Well, that's the power of the flesh, which seeks the praise of men over the only praise that comes from God. Oh, wretched man that Peter was. It proved that he was sold under sin. He needed to repent, and he did. And in this, I hope that we can see that there is a point. It's not that Peter was committing adultery, or that he was visiting prostitutes, or that he was stealing from the offering of the church in Antioch. What Romans 7 is all about is far more subtle. Those gross, observable sins have absolutely no place in the life of a believer. We have been freed from them. But just when we thought those were the larger issues, we find that the issues of pride and seeking the praise of others and acting out of self-interest rather than God-interest is revealed to us, and we find ourselves overwhelmed by what is still alive in our flesh. I hope you can see what I set out to accomplish today. We've not studied Romans 7 14 to 25. All we've done is sought to understand how to apply it. We're going to study it tomorrow, but for today, one more thing remains. If Romans 7 speaks of the believer's inner experience, then is there no victory in this life? Is it not true that the Son sets us free? To that, we must respond that we are set free in Christ. But there's a little lesson. I find the greatest freedom I have are in those moments when the Spirit shows me my sin and the joy I have in confession and repentance and the freedom that I have in knowing there is no condemnation and the joy I have in knowing that I will yet win this fight. Join me tomorrow as we continue to study Romans 7, 14 to 25.
0: John, thanks for another great message today. A quick question, though. In this day and age, how do we continue to claim victory and yet remain humble?
1: Boy, that is the question. I have found sometimes when I feel like I'm walking closest to the Lord, there's an arrogance that can grow up inside me as well. And and somehow this passage seems to put us on the footing of humility. uh, But we're going to have to work at those two elements. It's a great question. And we're going to continue to work at that as we work through this passage.
0: Well, today, Dr. Newfeld has given us just a taste of this rich passage from Romans 7 that we'll continue to study tomorrow. But I think we've covered so much important ground here regarding how to find the balance in our faith between freedom from sin and yet a growing awareness of our sin nature. It's with this perspective that we can find the path towards becoming more holy as we confess our sins and let the Spirit renew us every day. I hope that this message has impacted your walk with God today and helped you understand the truths that he's revealed us graciously through his word. Listen again tomorrow as Dr. Newfelt unpacks more of Romans chapter 7 verses 14 to 25 in the power of the gospel. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. As a Bible teaching ministry, we're always humbled and amazed to see people from all spiritual backgrounds tuning into the broadcast and being exposed to the truths found in God's Word. The reach of Back to the Bible Canada is truly a work of God, and it may interest you to know that this program is being heard by non-Christians as well as believers. Here's just one example that Dr. Neufeld shared about a listener he met. On a trip across Canada, I was shocked to meet a young woman who'd immediately hugged me. I instinctively stepped back until she explained that she'd just come to Christ from listening to The Daily Program. This and so many other testimonies speak to the heart of what we do, proclaim the truth of the Bible amidst a rapidly changing culture, to tell the greatest story ever told of God's amazing love demonstrated through His Son, Jesus Christ, and the good news of the Gospel. Simply put, we couldn't do this without folks like you. Your prayers and financial gifts, whatever size, make all the difference in our ability to remain on the air and to reach people online through our mobile app, other resources, and so many more. So today, would you help us to carry on the mission in 2016 even more boldly than ever before? Whether a one-time gift or even joining our Partner to Tell campaign, we would be so grateful for your support. To see how you can get involved, Contact us at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425.